calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm Presents Dark Heights, Episode 10. Charlie, absence. After many days and nights of solitary wandering through the wilderness of Es, I came at last to the shoreline shallows of the Western Sea, where, in the distance, the slender minarets of the Edytum broke vertical lines across the sunset. I camped on the strand in the leeward shelter of a great rock, and at morning's low tide, as the intervening sea receded, I crossed the wet gray sands. It was said that the men and women who lived here in monastic contemplation were wise beyond all others in the West. I intended to press them for the truths I had pursued for some time now across the world in vain. There are no walls that surround the Aditum, no fortifications built to forestall an invading host. Its remoteness is its protection, so that all who manage to find their way here are free to come and go. Those who join the ranks of the contemplatives never leave. Visitors are given shelter and food for as long as they wish to stay. I gain the salt stairs that lead up from the sands. At the top I was met by a woman in a long robe tied at the waist with a rough hemp rope, the hood of the garment thrown back, and her black hair loose against her shoulders. Welcome to this place of peace, she said. We walked toward the nearest building, a long, low structure built of dark, rough-hewn stone. We stepped inside the arched entrance into an alcove. Here, there were weapons of war left behind by their owners, daggers piled on a pedestal, spears and shields, swords and scabbards standing discarded, propped up against the walls. We ask that you go unarmed in the Adatum, the wise woman said, turning to me. You will not need your weapons here. I rested my long staff against the stonework wall. Then I removed a belted scabbard, propping up my half-sword. Whisper, there next to the staff, struggling with some misgivings as I did so. 
No one touches these, I said, pointing to my possessions. Except for me. None here would touch any of these things, the wise woman replied. She led me further into the complex. Other men and women dressed in simple robes passed us. Some smiling openly, others hurrying past with bowed heads. I was awestruck by the preternatural quiet all around us. Our footfalls on the paths made no sound whatsoever, and as if to counter its effects, I found myself unable to refrain from talking. Your accent, I said to the wise woman. It is distinctive. Yes, she said. I came here from the province of T some years ago now. You must have fled the conquest, I said, shaking my head, and its terrors. The wise woman stopped. What is it that you think you will find here? We do not wish to be troubled by the outside world. Indeed, it is the outside world I wish to leave behind, I said, for it has failed me utterly. I see. Her gaze upon me was appraising and severe. Presently, she seemed to make a decision. Then why not join me for a morning repast, and you may tell me of your troubles? She led us to a vaulted refectory hall, where long oaken tables and empty benches awaited crowded mealtimes. We seated ourselves at a smaller round table apart from the others, next to a leaded window looking out upon the tidal flats between the Aditum and the western shore. I felt sure I could see my footprints in the sand from my crossing of it. A small boy with a shaved head and simple linen garments brought us bowls of olives, dried fruit, unsalted bread, and clear cold water in worn wooden cups. The wise woman smiled at me. I realized she was much younger than I had thought. There was a beauty in her unlined face and a directness in her gaze that made me feel awkward and ponderous. She was waiting silently. Belatedly, I realized I was expected to tell my story. So I began. I am not from this world, I said. I know it, but I have no proof of it. All my days are spent seeking the place I came from. In the city of Ar, deep within the great library, I came across an ancient text in a language none now speak, save the master librarian himself. This is what he read to me. Distant kingdom, at peace at last, after many years of bloodshed, violence, and suffering, the people of this land looked upon the broken world they had risen above, this world of suffering they could no longer be part of, their lore masters worked magic never seen before. Distant kingdom disappeared. All traces of it began to fade. Even its true name is now lost to us, and soon every memory of it in our world will be gone. My home, distant kingdom. This is my home, this place that no longer exists. How do you know? The wise woman said. I remember it. It is difficult, but I remember. There are moments when I feel as if I can see it through a veil. I can see what I have lost. Here, I said. Let me show you something. 
I removed an object from my pack. A long tube of thick vellum tied with a silk cord. I swept aside the dishes of our meal and unrolled the vellum across the table, revealing to the wise woman my life's work. A map, she said, taking in a breath. Oh, it is beautiful, is it not? I searched the world for signs of a passage or gate or doorway back to Distant Kingdom. And here, on this map, I mark the outlines and borders of all the places that are not the one I seek. I thought, perhaps, over time, I could create an image in negative of what went missing. Once I had completed the world here on this map, it would be possible to discern the shape of the emptiness within it. I shook my head slowly. Now I am not so certain. No, I am not so sure. The wise woman was absorbed in the map, an expression of rapt enchantment having come across her ageless face. With one finger she traced the contours of shorelines and rivers and mountain ranges and ancient roads. This place she said. This jagged line, what is it? Tell me of it, I said. The chasm of A, a rift in the land like a wound gouged in the earth in some past age. I sought subterranean passages into distant kingdom, thinking there might be a gate buried underground. The primitive cave paintings of the Grulocks, those misbegotten creatures, suggested they worshipped such a thing, a gate between worlds, of course, as I explored the chasm, the Grulocks emerged, swarming from the mouths of caves, brandishing their crude weapons to drive me away. When I stood my ground, they became crazed and attacked me. My half-sword whisper took them, one after another, whirling between cruel strikes, carving a sound from the air that gives the blade its name. The wise woman had closed her eyes to listen to my story. Terrifying, she said at last. She looked down at the map again. What about here, this place? The forgotten monument in the Valley of En, a vast, towering structure, empty save for one man, the Monument Keeper, whose task it is to work the machinery that draws arcane power from deep below the earth in order to light, each night, the many hundreds of lamps throughout the monument's corridors. The keeper said to me, Take this, giving me a thin circle of red and gold metal, and take over my work just for one day. Let me sleep, oh, let me just sleep, and then I will tell you the secret you are looking for. And so climb the tower, pulling countless levers, turning endless switches. When I was done and dusk had come and the monument burned with light, I found that the keeper was gone. I waited. I held on for many more days, repeating the same tasks as I had been instructed. The keeper did not come back. Neither could I stay longer. My journeys were not yet done. As I walked away from the abandoned monument, I looked back once through the twilight and saw its unlit upper reaches fade into the falling dark. The wise woman of the Aditum clapped her hands in delight. How wonderful! And what happened to you here? she asked, pointing to another location on the map. The great forest of G, I said, 
What befell you there? I found my way through without incident. She pointed again. Another place, then. Here. E, the open city, I said. Where the fallen wonders of ages past now lie in ruins. The scavenger clans fight an endless war for territory here, eking out their mean existence amidst the rubble. There was a rumor that the scrap lord of the open city's northern reachers had found a key in the wastes. Thus I was taken by scavengers into the scrap lord's presence and told to offer a gift to please him or be put to death. Fear gripped me. What had I brought? Nothing. Then I remembered. Hanging about my neck on a slender chain was the circle of red and gold metal I had been given by the monument keeper, for which I had found no use in the monument itself. I held it out and the scrap lord took it in his bear's paw hand, turning it over and over. It is cursed, he finally said. Just as this key we found in the wasteland of R is cursed. A servant came forward and placed a strange, oblong blue crystal in front of me on the wolfskin rugs. Take both of these things away from us, the scrap lord said, and I will let you live. The wise woman of the Adytum waited for me to continue. When I did not, she said, Tell me more of your travels. No, I returned. It is time for me to ask you what I have come to ask. As you wish. Can you help me? I said. You who are wise beyond all others. Do you know how to find the distant kingdom? You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Charlie, Aura, I am excited, waiting for you all this time. Are you confused? This happens to strangers when you come into my world out of the bathtub. You get confused. Yes, you are a stranger, that is what you are. 
you are from a different world. Welcome. Have a granola bar and a fruit roll-up. Here, take them, please. I took the wrappers off. Put them in your mouth. Yes, just like that. This is called eating. This is a motel room. Evergreen Motel Room 6. It is my room. It was given to me by Gary Cooper. I am Charlie. I am here to help you. Before that, I have to tell you something. I am not like other people in this world. Someone else would be better for you. I am sorry that you were stuck with me and not someone better. Oh, you have to read this note. It is about me. My Aunt Tina wrote this on a piece of paper. I am supposed to give it to people. I give it to all of the strangers that come through here. Why is the bathtub in Evergreen Motel Room 6 the gateway from your world? I don't know. Look, you are soaking wet and you will catch a cold. You are going to need another towel. Oh, and this here, on the bed, this is a map for you. In fact, it is for me too because I get lost. Do you know what happens to me? I have to erase this map all the time. Sometimes I have to start it over again. Everything is always changing. Places are supposed to stay in the same place, but they do not. It is a lot of work. Even biking from Aunt Tina's house to Crazy's for a jumbo smoothie can take all day. I have to stop and sit down and erase the streets and draw new streets. This map is not one map. It is many maps over the top of other maps. I forgot that you have to read this note. This is a note from my pocket. Oh, first I want to say something. At Crazy's, there were two ladies smoking outside and talking. I came up on my bike behind them, but they did not see me and they kept talking. If you look into my mind, you can see my memory of what they said. Yes, just like that. You are so good at reading minds. The lady said, Jess, you think you've got it hard. What about Tina Gerson? The other lady said, I know, right? She's all on her own with her poor nephew. He's creepy, though, in that mask. You're terrible, Mandy. After what happened to him, he's lucky to be alive. I don't know how lucky it is to have to live like that. The worst part is that everyone knew what was going on in that house, and no one did anything about it. That's just people minding their own business like they should. Oh my god, Mandy, there he is. Shh, he's right there. Oh my god. I am sorry that I am the wrong person to tell you about this world. I am confusing. I have seizures. What do you want here anyway? What are you strangers looking for when you come out of the bathtub? Is this world better than your world? This on the bed, this here is a map. It is for you and I use it too. I am sorry that the spelling is all wrong. Oh, you need to read this note. It is from my pocket. Aunt Tina wrote this note for me to give to people, but I pretend I do not have it. I will tell you why I do that. I pretend that I do not have it because nobody wants me to give it to them. Please, can you read this note out loud for us? It is very difficult for me to read. My name is Charlie Mill. I have many deficits for my TBI, which is a traumatic brain injury. Because of dysarthria, it's challenging for me to speak. 
Because of dysphagia, I have difficulty swallowing. I have aphasia, which means words work differently for me. I have atonic seizures, which means I fall down suddenly. And I have prolonged absence seizures, which means I stare off into space. And before my absence seizures, I experience an aura, which impairs my vision. Thank you for reading this and taking the time to understand me. It is very serious. You know, though, sometimes it is funny, too. When I am biking and there is an atonic seizure, I fall right down onto the crossbar and bang my crotch on it, and then I topple over sideways. If there could be a video of all the times that this has happened to me, it would make everyone laugh. This is my mask. I do not mind that you see my face, but I have to put my mask on when I am out there. When I hold up the mask like this, it looks empty and lonely. Uncle Terry used to take this very same mask down from the wall. He bought it in Mexico a long time ago. It was always hanging on a hook on the wall behind the bar in the basement. Uncle Terry would hold it up just like I am right now. In his other hand, he would have a beer. Uncle Terry would make monster sounds and chase me with the empty mask and I would run away. I never saw him put it on, not even once. We are lucky that you can read my mind. When I speak out loud, it is difficult to understand. Here, let me show you. I am happy to meet you, stranger. That took a long time and it was embarrassing for both of us. It is also very difficult for me to read and to write. Oh, there is a note for you to read. It is about me. You are right. In fact, you are holding the note because we just read it. I forgot. The aura must be coming. It is very difficult to keep things in my mind when the aura comes. The aura is what happens before absence. Absence is a seizure that lasts for several minutes. It is best if I am here in the motel room or at home in my room in Aunt Tina's house, or else people see me sitting by the sidewalk or lying on the grass and they become upset. Absence means I disappear. I do not remember anything. What if you are someone who has absence in your world, and that is when you come to this one? Do you know that when you come out of the bathtub... The water turns black. You are just a silhouette in this world. That is what you look like. I learned that word from Antina's word-a-day calendar. That is what you are. A silhouette. You are the empty outline of a shadow. I have to tell you something before I forget. Do not go to the wellness center. Right now it is here on the map, right here at the bottom. That is where the circle is. You do not need to go there. It is dangerous. Kevin was there. I am anxious because I saw Kevin there looking in the window. I know that the circle will be bad for him because of his dad. Oh. Oh, the aura is starting. I am sorry. It means the absence is coming too. 
I am not sure that I will remember what we talked about. Can you see in my mind how the world starts to burn? Everything is on fire with red and gold and blue fire coming up from below. Do you know what happened to me? Did I tell you? Where is the mask? I need to put it on. Look at those colors exploding. Red and gold and blue. My uncle Terry beat me to death. He put my body in the back of his pickup and drove to Los Angeles to the hospital. Then he called the police and waited outside to be arrested. I was not dead. I was in a coma. Then I woke up. Colors out of the walls. Colors in the air. Uncle Terry was charged with attempted murder. In jail, he made it so the guards and other inmates hated him. One day, he was stabbed in the back multiple times. He went to the prison hospital, and that was where he died. Uncle Terry hit me with his fists, and then he dragged me outside and used a two-by-four. There were colors then, too. Exploding colors and flames that screamed. At the trial, he said he was drunk, and he could not remember. Then he said he thought he was his own father, and he thought that I was him when he was little, and he wanted to kill himself. Now I have to stop. All the colors are leaving, and that means absence is here. I am sorry. I wish I could have been more helpful. You will see what things are like. Mostly, it is very difficult, and we do not have a choice. You will get lost. Oh, this part hurts. It hurts. Everything on fire, burning, burning, world burning down. Bye-bye. Charlie, absence. No, the wise woman said. I cannot help you. However, there is a locked tower down this hallway. She pointed to a passage leading away from the rectory. She smiled sadly. Thank you for your stories. I love them. I stared at her in defeat and despair as she walked away, leaving me alone at the table by the window. Finally, I got up and went down the passage that she had indicated. I came to a heavy door in which two complex locks were set. One was a circular indentation, and the other a square opening. Trembling, I pressed the circle of red and gold metal from the monument into the one lock. The strange blue crystal that the scrap lord had given to me, I inserted into the other lock. There were a series of whirs and clicks. The door swung open. A stone staircase spiraled upward. After an interminable ascension, I came to the top of the stairs, stepping into a round chamber open to the air. At this great height, the salt wind tore at the edges of my cloak. In that high place, looking out over endless slate-gray waves, I saw only the far horizon. I closed my eyes. 
Why had I been led here if there was nothing? No other world to look into from this vantage. At last, I understood. The other world I longed for, the world in which I belonged, my distant kingdom, my home, lay across a gulf I could not bridge. I would never find it. I would never stop looking for it. Arson. I know that you've read the Heraclitus you were assigned, William, Marius Severin said. You were observed by the kitchen staff reading the copy of Fragments from our library several nights ago while consuming a beef brisket sandwich at the keeping room table. Yes, father, said Will. And Lina, did you complete this assignment as well? Lina continued to eat in silence, not looking up from her plate. Her father and brother waited. Finally, Will broke in, unable any longer to hold back what he wanted to say. We must know that war is common to all, and strife is justice, and that all things come into being through strife necessarily. Marius turned his head to regard his son. An interesting choice of quotation, Tell me what it means. Because of Pontare, which is the idea that everything is changing all the time, from moment to moment, it follows also that there's always strife, there's conflict, between what something was and what it has to become. Ah, that's good, his father said. Strife, yes, but don't forget justice. I'm not sure I understand that part. Daiki Eris. Strife is justice. There is a balance and a harmony to be found at the center of conflict between the moment's destruction of a thing and the moment after, when it's remade. Suddenly, Lina spoke up. Souls smell in Hades. Will grinned at her, and Marius smiled softly. He said, And that's your quote from Heraclitus for this evening? Yes, Lina said, defiant. Yes, it is. There used to be more dinners that were shared at the long table in the West Hall of Arson. It had been their custom since they were very young to sit at one end of the table with their father for nearly every evening meal. He would discuss with the two of them the books they had read, the films they had screened in the theater room, their observations of the world. He gave out stern lectures when needed, yet he always allowed for the small moments of humor they loved to see in him. More and more often, now that Will and Lina were eleven years old, they dined apart, or one of them ate in the kitchen with the staff because no one else was home, or the twins dined together in the keeping room. What neither of them, Will or Lina, would acknowledge as true was that their father, Marius Severand, who had been so dominant in their childhoods, always present, always guiding them, teaching, was now more distant as they had become older and independent. He was gone from arson for greater lengths of time, sometimes months, and when he was home he was often found away from the manor, out on the grounds, alone in the reverie house. 
In the way that children take on the moods of their parents in order to feel closer to them, Will and Lina now often fought with each other, lashing out in the grip of attention and tiredness they did not understand. The week leading up to Christmas was different. Or rather, it was the same as it used to be, before. Marius Severand remained at home, and the three of them spent every day together. The most elaborate dinner of the year took place on December 21st, the winter solstice, which is where they were now, discussing Heraclitus. Will and Marius Severand were dressed in formal jackets for the night, and Lina wore a new dress that was a rich dark green color, trimmed with white at the sleeves and collar. After dinner, they retired to the vista room on the second floor, which overlooked the front of the manor and the drive that led up to the main entrance. It was a winter solstice tradition. Marius poured out a sip of cognac for each of them, more for himself, and they sat in plush, high-backed chairs drawn into a semicircle around the fireplace. Though it wasn't cold here in California, it felt to each of them that the temperature had been dropping all night, and the flames that blackened the logs on the hearth gave a welcome, warm glow. It was silent in the vista room. Will and Lina did not speak in the presence of their father unless he spoke first. Abruptly, Marius rose from his chair, his cognac drained empty, and moved to the balcony, opening the doors to go outside. Will and Lina exchanged an excited glance, then followed. It had begun to snow across the grounds of Arson. It was the most beautiful kind of snow, falling so slowly it was possible to pick out a single snowflake and watch it flutter down from above to settle next to others on the ground before melting away. There was no wind, there was no cold, yet the snow continued to fall and began to accumulate in white tufts on the green lawns. I promised you snow for your birthday, Marius said to them. Did you forget? He turned away from the view and swept them both up into his arms. Happy birthday, my little ones. Then he held them both at arm's length, one hand on Will's and one on Lina's shoulder, looking at them closely. You've grown, haven't you? Twelve years old now. I'm proud of both of you. Will sniffed as if there were tears in his eyes. Lina held her father's gaze. The snow had begun to swirl around them, falling onto their faces. There's something I need to speak of. Marius released them. His hands went to his sides, fingers curling into hollow fists. It's time for your trials once again. Involuntarily, Will reached for his sister's hand and held it until she pulled it away. He glanced over at her. Her eyes were closed. Snowflakes clung to her lashes. We won't let you down, father, Will said. I know that you won't. Will you be administering these trials? Lina said. Her father shook his head. Not this time, no. Now he drew close to Lina and went down onto one knee so that they were level. He put both hands on her shoulders. It's not too late for you, Lina. I have faith in you. You'll pass this time. I don't want to take them. We don't have a choice. I want to go to school with Will. We have the best teachers in the world for you here. I want to go to school with Will. Marius did not speak for a moment. If you pass these new trials, maybe you can. 
Lina also didn't speak. Then she said, May I sleep in the top room tonight? Of course. And so Lina, later that night, was moving down the hallway past Will's bedroom and then her father's, her flashlight spotlight fixed to the floor. She had put on a terry cloth robe over her nightgown. Her feet were pressed into warm white bunny slippers. At the end of the hall, there were stairs going up. She took these and came to a connecting passage where other hallways and stairwells intersected in confusing directions. There was a tall door here that swung out quickly when unlatched. Lina had knocked her head on it many times, and she went through this and up a tightly twisting spiral staircase, coming out at last into the top room. Her flashlight illuminated the dark space in a sweeping arc, There were unused chairs piled in a tumble of interlocked legs, tables stacked in solid columns like forgotten monuments. Wardrobes stood apart, their doors hanging open, revealing empty insides. Desks, benches, cabinets, stools, bookshelves, heaped in disarray. Lina navigated through the labyrinth, turning sideways to fit through the narrow space between a sideways four-poster bed with no mattress and a massive dining room sideboard, like a wall in the middle of the capacious, vaulted-ceilinged storage attic. Her hideaway, at the heart of this disorder of discarded furniture, was more hers than any other place in all of Arson. Her books were alphabetized on a low shelf— The dollhouses and the hope chest and the hobby horse from her younger years made islands in the drifts of dresses, hats, blouses, gloves, and feather boas strewn thoughtlessly everywhere. Lina jumped onto the old creaking couch where she would sleep. She had found a landscape painting buried deep among the uncatalogued contents of the top room. She had hung it on a coat stand. It depicted arson seen from far away, surrounded by the green brushstrokes of trees and appeared in the flashlight circle of light like the gaze of a distant watcher looking in on her family. All of her stuffed animals had migrated over time from her bedroom into this space of hers. She gathered these former companions and observers of her childhood into her arms, pulled them over the top of her head, and fell asleep breathing into their fur. In her dream... She was walking in the woods. The snow that had fallen earlier still blanketed the ground, a wet white slush that clung to her bunny slippers so that her feet were heavy and difficult to lift. I don't have much time. You'd better walk with me. There was a brightness in the trees in front of her that hurt to look at. Lina shielded her eyes from it, hands in front of her face. Lux, she said. You're going to have to turn yourself down. I can't see anything. A small boy, five or six years old, stepped toward her through snow that melted away from his bare feet. Harsh white light shone out of the shape of him, causing thin, stark shadows to spring back from the trunks of the trees all around them. Happy birthday, Lina, he said. Turn it down, Lina shouted at him. Oh, sorry. The boy came closer and the light that streamed out from him dimmed to a red ember smolder. Come with me, he said. Where are we going? Just to the reverie house. I have to go soon. You just got here, Lux. I know, he sighed. It's harder and harder for me to come at all. Why? Because you're older now, 
Your dreams aren't as open as they used to be. As they talked, they made their way through the woods, walking side by side. Arson receded further behind them, and the snow on the ground diminished until it disappeared altogether. The path that led forward was dry, and the temperature in the air rose sharply. When I was little, Lina said, you were with me all the time, even when I was awake. Only in your mind. That means you're not real. I'm real. When I wake up, can I find you? Lux looked at her. You'll forget about me when you wake. I won't. They had come to the reverie house, which was far from the manor, out in the wooded grounds on the edge of a hillside slope that looked northward into deeper, thicker forest land. It was a simple bungalow with an angled roof. A tall chimney rose up on one side, exhaling a smudged line of smoke. There was no technology allowed in the reverie house, no furniture, nothing at all except for a wood stove that the manor staff kept burning all through the winter, all day and night. Lux stopped and turned to her. I have to tell you something before I go. I know you're scared about the new trials. I know you're angry and sad because Will passed the last ones and you didn't. I came tonight to tell you that you're not like your brother or your father or the others. You're special, Lina. You're important. She said, That's what I'd expect my imaginary friend to tell me, that I'm special, I'm important. No one else says that to me. No one else knows what to say. If I'm not like them, what am I? Luck shrugged his shoulders. You'll find out. I know you will. Maybe not for a long time. He looked away, thinking. It might be the case that someone comes to help you, someone we don't know about yet. He looked at her sternly. But you have to be careful. Finding out won't make anything easier. The front door of the reverie house began to swing open slowly. Lina saw shapes through the doorway, dark figures that moved, thronging, pushing at the walls, slipping out from within as the edge of the door creaked open wide. Lux whirled about and the light burst out from him, driving the shadows back inside. When will I see you again? Lina said. Lux shook his head. You'll keep what I said hidden within you, Lina, and when you need it, you'll take strength from it. There's no one else like you. No one else will be able to do what you can do. He raised his right hand toward her. I'm sorry, but I can't risk your father finding out about me. He gestured, and then his hand fell back. He went inside the reverie house and closed the door behind him. Lina forgot, between one moment and the next, everything that had happened in her dream. When she woke the next morning, she'd have no memory of Lux's visit or the things he had told her. She would remember the rest of the dream. In it, she was returning to Arson after a long journey, walking alone on the path in the woods. There was snow underfoot, and she remembered that her father had promised them snow for their birthday. When she came out from the trees and saw the mansion circled by lawns that undulated softly beneath the pristine white, she knew she had somehow stepped inside a snow globe long since stilled, with arson in miniature at the center, lit up from inside so that yellow light spilled out of the windows and doors. She was in there too, 
In the snow globe, standing right at the rounded outside surface of the glass, yet she was too small to be seen from high above. You're listening to Dark Heights by C.D. Miller, starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. It is produced by Haley Wagreich and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Original music by Chris Miller.